According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Jeremiah. If it will start, we'll see. Jeremiah chapter 33. We uh, tackled Isaiah in 66 Sundays and uh, have then proceeded to build on that with uh, Jeremiah in 52 Sundays, of which we've now covered 32 out of the 52 chapters. And uh, these books are quite a contrast, such similarities between the messages and yet such contrast in the response. Uh, What would Jeremiah have done with a good king like Hezekiah (laughs) or anybody hungry for truth? Uh, but Jeremiah has Manasseh, and he has uh, wicked kings, right? Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and Zedekiah, all right? Zedekiah, not Manasseh, but uh, Zedekiah. And uh, wicked kings, kings that hate him, kings that don't want him preaching, all right? And so uh, the contrast is different. And in Isaiah's message, it's a repent or else, and they do. They repent. And uh, although the northern kingdom's swept away, the southern kingdom is, is de- delivered, they wake up the next morning and find the whole army is gone, the, the army of the Assyrians that was attacking them. And uh, Hezekiah gets 15 more years added to his life, and they get to go on as a kingdom, and things, things are going well. Well, it's not Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, it's, it's uh, repent or else, but you're not going to repent, and destruction is coming. And that's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city and the temple. Everything's burned to the ground. And uh, we, we call that a, an unhappy ending at the end. And, uh, and yet Jeremiah stays faithful, absolutely stays faithful to the end and beyond. He is in the city when it falls. And uh, these are messages that it was interesting to be preaching as the election was approaching and uh, preparing the flock. What, what direction is our nation going to go? Is our nation going to go the Isaiah direction or the Jeremiah direction? The Hezekiah direction or the Zedekiah direction? What are we headed for? Are we headed for a captivity? Or have we been given another 15 years of life? Have we been given an extension of grace and mercy? And so, um, in any event, uh, this is where we are. Let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll return to uh, our next chapter, which is chapter 33. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness. Humble, Father, by the faithfulness of your word, how it is so alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, we've already feasted upon a message once this morning, and I thank you for the impact of of that from Galatians chapter 6. I thank you for the hymns that we've sung. I thank you for the reinforcement of so many truths. Uh, As Father, uh, we, we now know, I mean, You've been teaching us about Calvary and the the full work that was done on the cross. And now, Father, with Jeremiah, and Father, uh, the blessings we have once again to to study a prophet who ministered when nobody else around him even cared about the Word of God, and yet he stayed faithful. So uh, equip us, Father, to serve in our generation. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, as we deal with chapter 33 then... We're going to break this chapter down into two parts, Uh, handle uh, verses 1 through 13 with some points of study, and then handle uh, 14 through 26 
with some points to study and uh, just break it down into half and, and try to handle it very quickly. Uh, let's read a few verses here, though. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard. You might recall last week, Jeremiah was under arrest. And uh, as he was imprisoned, the word of God is not imprisoned, and he was able to receive messages from the Lord and, and speak and uh, conduct even a business transaction when he had a cousin that arrived to, uh, to sell him a piece of land. And uh, material that we dealt with last week, well, this chapter is a continuation of chapter 32. And so now for the second time, while he's imprisoned in the uh, court of the guard, the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things uh, which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps and against the sword. While they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans and fill them with the corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath, and I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. All right? It's not just a rebuilding effort. It's not just secular, not just a political rescue. There's a spiritual component that must be addressed. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. All right, we'll stop there. We'll pick up some more. Um, but for now, let's just take a look at this because imagine what's happening here. He's already spoken about their house. He's already spoken about the throne of David and the, the vacating of the Davidic throne and, and sending uh, the Jews into captivity uh, and, and what he's going to have to do to restore that. Here he's talking about houses, plural, and he's talking about literal houses, structures, buildings, homes that people are living in. And what they're doing is they're demolishing them to get building materials. They're trying to shore up spots in the wall. They're trying to toughen up their defenses. And, uh, you know, as more and more of them are starving to death anyway, they need fewer and fewer homes. And so you can imagine they're downsizing in, in what they need to live in and they're demolishing the rest and they're trying everything they can, trying everything they can through human effort to thwart what God has already promised is going to happen. And uh, this is uh, such a metaphor for our day and age and people that you may know um, that, uh, or ourselves, if we're honest, uh, that we try these things with human effort before we stop and reorient and say, wait a minute, God's the one that's supposed to be doing this. And we humble ourselves before his word. I like the fact that while human effort does everything it can, God's promise centers on what he will do. God's promise centers on what he will do. And uh, what a contrast, because here's hum human effort that will fall short. Human effort, maybe you can do all that you can do, or be all that you can be, or anything else. All of your human effort is going to let you down. The human effort is not what God is calling for in the plan of God. Our resources are divine resources. This is, this is what we're called to do in the supernatural Christian way of life. 
And so, what a contrast. And you, and you start to think about, you know, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, and, and you wonder, am I really accomplishing anything? Or demolishing a house to build up a wall when the wall itself is, is going to be torn down? It's all going to be torn down, see? And uh, we have this. Now, it's interesting the way that he describes himself and the way that he reminds uh, the Jews who he is. Yahweh is his name. Have you forgotten that? My name is Yahweh. It's like a brand new introduction. And uh, it serves to encourage Jeremiah personally and theoretically through Jeremiah it could encourage the inhabitants of, uh, of Jerusalem. You know, last week we had uh, Yahweh Tzibayoth, right? The Lord God of the armies. Lord Sabaoth, his name. We should have sung that to him this morning. Um, you know, Martin Luther wrote about this, and a mighty fortress is our God. And uh, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he will win the battle, right? Well, here's Lord Sabaoth that we had last week in Jeremiah 32. And uh, this is his name. You might recall, if I just peek back here. Um, it says, All Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. You know, if you think your problems are too big to solve, just remember he created this place, <laughs> right? The whole universe. And uh, he, he's well equipped to handle what we're dealing with. He says, Nothing is, out, is too difficult for you who shows loving kindness to thousands but repays the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. So that's what we got last week. Last week we were told Yahweh Tsevaioth is his name. And the message there is one you might expect from Yahweh Tsevaioth. Okay? If that's the hat that he's wearing, if that, he has many names, many hats. And so when he shows up and, and speaks, thus saith the Lord God of the armies, Typically, that's a message of, 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 that's bad news. That's a message of conflict. That's a message of war. That's a message of death and destruction. But here in this chapter, it's Yahweh, simply Yahweh, the eternal I am, the name that he revealed himself to Moses with at the Exodus, and the name where he gave the significance of that name as a memorial. You understand? So uh, contrasting Yahweh Tsevaioth with simply and purely Yahweh, the Lord reminded Jeremiah who he is, who he is. And this is useful. Sometimes we even do the same thing. It's a little bit carnal sometimes when we do. Or, uh, you know, somebody very angry says, do you know who you're messing with? (laughs) Right? Or somebody very offended says, do you know who I am? Right. Do you know who my father is? Right. Okay. If, in fact, you happen to have arrested a general's daughter uh, as an MP in the army, then uh, maybe you've heard an expression such as that. All right. In any event. And then you drive her home and you have a nice talk with her father. Do you know who you're messing with? I am Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth. And here he's not promising them as Yahweh Sevaioth, destruction and death and warfare. He's promising them as the creator what he's going to create, what he is going to do. He is going to bring them back from their captivity. He is going to bring uh, his kingdom onto this earth. And uh, it's uh, it's a remarkable promise that we see here. Uh, If we took the time, we could go back to Exodus 3, and I don't mind briefly, we can look at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus is easy to find, it's right after Genesis. Chapter 3 is easy to find, it's near the beginning. We can get there shortly. Exodus chapter 3. Because there's some statements that are made here 
and I think it, they get misread, and the, and the critics will will mock it. Um, it, it the, the text does not say that the name of Yahweh was not known to Abraham or to the patriarchs. Uh, sometimes it's read that way, but the significance of that name was not known. Abraham addressed Yahweh, and Yahweh addressed Abraham, and the patriarchs knew Yahweh. Even Gentiles knew Yahweh. But the significance of Yahweh as Eye, the significance of the I am that lies underneath the, uh, the, uh, the personal name here, the memorial name of Yahweh, becomes significant. So this is the burning bush, of course. Moses is being called. He's being given the job responsibilities, which he feels unworthy for. And I think we can relate to that. But in verse 13, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And by the way, this fascinates me because I don't know why Moses would have thought they would have asked such a thing. But he does. And to me, it speaks to a current debate going on in their slavery as to who Yahweh is that promised to bring them back. And uh, it's interesting that they, have, that they, in their captivity, have an interest as to his name. And so God said to Moses, I am who I am. He is the self-existent. He is the eternal I am. Always has been, always will be the I am. And so the, the Hebrew of this, the aye of, of I am, underlies the significance of the Yahweh that, uh, that we have as a personal name. This name that is so holy, Jewish people won't even pronounce it out loud. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. And so we have a significance here. And it's a significance that is never supposed to be lost. This is who he is and this is why he's named what he is. And don't ever forget it. It is a memorial name. It is a special name. And whereas uh, Gentiles may know the name Yahweh and fear it, Israel should know the name Yahweh and the significance of the I am and embrace it. And this is a, a, quite a privilege for the Jewish people, quite a privilege for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Yahweh is the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the significance of that, it's a good reminder. He is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even in 586 BC, even with Babylonians surrounding them, even with the temple about to be destroyed. And, and this is, is supposed to be a huge encouragement to them, and sadly, no one's listening except Jeremiah, <laughs> all right? But he listens, and he preaches it, and he stays faithful, even in the face of all of the, uh, the opposition. Speaking of faces, did you spot in there how God had hid his face? God hides his face on many occasions, typically as it centers on our sin, on our rejection of his word. And uh, we wonder sometimes why he can't hear our prayers. And the question, and that's a, it's a misnomer, it's not that he can't hear our prayers, it's that he's not hearing our prayers. He is choosing to not listen. And he is choosing to hide his face. He's choosing not to watch because of our sin. And what we need is confession. What we need is to be restored to his will. Then he's all ears. After that, if we confess, he's there. He's listening, he's watching, he's going to look over. But in the carnality state, he's not listening and he will hide his face. And a prolonged hiding of the face is, uh, is, is real trouble for a nation, for a community, for a people group. 
because a prolonged hiding of the face will lead to the the land actually vomiting the people out. And uh, it's it's a mark of those cycles of discipline you study in uh, in the Old Testament. There's a whole realm of scriptures that address this in the hiding of the face. And uh, not only here in verses 1 through 5, but it was an expression we encountered previously in, in Jeremiah 18. So it's our second time to see this expression in this same book. Jeremiah 18 and verse 17. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will, I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. Now at the same time, that that's a rebuke. At the same time, that that's a, that that's a, a, a description of their national destruction. Might it also be an encouragement for them? Might it also be a prompt and a goad? Can you think of any other time that somebody saw God's back? Right? Again, we're, we're going back to Moses again. We're going back to the Torah. And, and Moses wanted to see Yahweh's face, and God said no, but put him in the cleft of the rock and, sh- and covered him with his hand. And he got to see, as it were, in anthropomorphism, the, the back or backside of, of the Lord. Okay? And, uh, and so here is, a, is an expression of judgment about, well, I'm not watching over you anymore for care and for a blessing. I've turned my back on you. You see why that might be not only a discouragement, but at the same time an encouragement? Like, wait a minute. All right. Seeing the backside was sufficient for Moses. Should it not be sufficient for us? Can we also not call upon Yahweh, the memorial name of our God, and can we not repent? And will there be a time then that he will turn around and look upon us again with favor? Well, there will be, of course, because this is what he's promised to do. So turning the face, God's face is hidden. And I think we know this. We know this scripturally. We know this intuitively. We know this when we're in prolonged carnality. We know that if there's distance between God and us, it's because we made that distance. Because we ourselves have departed in darkness. We ourselves are out of the will of God. By the way, this is another reminder of how faithful God is. Because in Deuteronomy 31 and Deuteronomy 32, God said, I'm going to do this someday. (laughs) He said, you will disobey. I will turn my back on you. I will turn my face away from you. And so um, Deuteronomy 31, not always uh, able to appreciate discipline. People can't. Individuals can't. Cultures often can't. Um, when they can, it's because usually they're cycling truth and they know it's for their good. And they can thank, and thank their earthly father for discipline. They can thank their heavenly father for discipline. They can thank God for national discipline if they have the perspective to learn from it and be humbled and, and, and repent. See, But that's uh, not very common. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 17. And how, uh, of course prophetic in these things. Deuteronomy 31, 17, um, as Moses is preparing to die and, and preparing to hand everything off to Joshua and they're going to go into the land. And uh, so starting in verse 14, the Lord says to Moses, behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourself at the tent of meeting. It'll be a very clear change of command ceremony and the whole nation will know that uh, Joshua is uh, the man to lead them in. 
Um, and uh, so verse 15, the Lord appeared in the tent in the pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Can you imagine? What a message. Here's Moses getting ready to die. He's handed them the law. He's brought them to the border. He's he's not allowed to enter into the land, but Joshua's going to lead them into the land. And God's telling Moses, they're going to go in there and they're going to be idolaters. They're going to reject the law. They're going to do the same thing they did when you smashed the tablets at the golden calf. All right. And uh, then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods." And so this is extraordinary to me. This is the, the, the dynamic between Deuteronomy and Jeremiah. A lot of scholars comment upon it, and it's remarkable, the, the, the parallels that are there. But here's, here's something vital. Moses said it was going to happen, and Jeremiah says, see? <laughs> Moses told you so, all right? I told you so. Here we are. God is faithful. And that ought to be an encouragement. So what a perfect time to remind them about Yahweh, to remind them about their, the significance of that name and uh, the, the covenant nature of Israel with their God. Next chapter in Deuteronomy 32 as well, 32.20. He said to them, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. And when you read the surrounding verses there, you'll see the very same idolatry. All right, the very same idolatry. And it's interesting how God deals with a people group, with a nation or a people group that don't have a nation anymore. But he deals with people groups on a generational basis. And uh, if a generation is faithful, how long does that last? Does that mean automatically their children are going to be faithful? Typically not. <laughs> All right, when you study the Exodus and the wilderness and the conquest and the, the different generations of Israel there. Isaiah spoke of this, Isaiah eight seventeen, And you know, these, these messages are all reminders of how faithful God is. Don't think of this judgment as a bad thing. Think of it as a good thing because it's yet again proof that God is faithful. In fact, if God doesn't bring this judgment upon them, you know what that would signify? What would that tell you? Yeah, it would tell you that God's a liar, that God's not faithful. That he gave them a Mosaic law with a conditional covenant, with a do this or do that kind of a thing, and then uh, he kind of, you know, kind of let it slide when he did the that instead of the this. Okay? No, Mosaic law is conditional. Do this or do that. Do this and I will bless you. Do that and I will curse you. And so they were doing the that, and he was cursing them as a testimony to his faithfulness. It's a beautiful thing. Because it's that very same faithfulness that has promised them on the other side of captivity is coming a new covenant. A new covenant that's an unconditional covenant. A new covenant that has not a single do this or do that kind of condition. None. A new covenant that is eternally and unconditionally an I will covenant. And they can guarantee that he is going to be faithful. Because they're seeing the faithfulness right here in their, in their discipline. 
in their captivity, in the, in the uh, or else that he's applying. See, you've learned this as a parent, right? If you have too many or else's that never happened, your kid learns that. And they start to use that, okay? It's the same thing with children. It's the same thing with inmates when I worked in the jail. It's the same thing with church members. It's the same thing, all right? Same thing with presidents who say, you know, or else, and then there is no else. They draw a red line, which is really kind of pinkish, which is really kind of not even a line. And there's no, there's no or else. Okay? There, there has to be an or else if you say there's an or else. Or else you're faithless. Yahweh is not faithless. All right, so in, in Isaiah 8, 17... The, um, I will wait, uh, verse 16 says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. The faith of Isaiah, even though his nation was not looking, he was looking, becoming an intercessor on his nation's behalf. And then, uh, Ezekiel 39, 23, and 24, but I'm going to let those go. You can look those up on your own. Ezekiel 39, verses 23 and 24. Verses 6 through 9, God's work to rebuild Jerusalem will also include a grace and truth revival. It will also include a grace and truth revival. And this is so vital. You know, if if all you do is is score a political victory, if all you do is win an election, if all you do is survive a, 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 a political thing, and there's no spiritual revival, then what have you really done? And so, uh, I'm going back to my chapter here, chapter 33, verses 6 through 9, which you've already read. Um, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. Keep in mind, this is a corporate cleansing. God is dealing with their national sins. This is not our individual sinning. This is not getting saved or 1 John 1, 9 or any of the sort. This is the national sins being cleansed. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It requires the same blood that our forgiveness requires, but it's a different application. All right? In order for him to bring Israel into the bond of the covenant, it requires the blood of the covenant, which he shed on Calvary, same as he shed at the same time, same blood, same work on the cross. He did more work there than we usually give him credit for. Work towards the church, work towards Israel, work towards the angels, work towards the heavenly temple. Big study. All right, but here we see national sins being cleansed, and it will be verse nine to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations. It will be to me. See how personalized this becomes to Yahweh. How precious the name of Jerusalem will become. How precious the Jewish people will become. And uh, you know, you go through seasons where they're not so precious. You go through seasons where, you know. The wife tells the husband, uh, do you know what your son did today? All right. And then when that child has just been disowned by half their parentage, you realize, wait a minute. Um, your son? Our son? Okay. Well, there will come a day when to me the name will be precious. But it is not this day. <laughs> All right. This day... This day there's judgment. 
And then when this is being expressed here, but it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it. All right, think of it. (laughs) Yahweh is going to make Jerusalem great again. All right, never mind. Thus says the Lord, yet again, verse 10, there will be heard in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man, without beast. Is that what you see? Well, that's what you see now. But what's it going to be? That is, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man, without inhabitant, without beast. Guess what's going to happen? The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of a bridegroom, the voice of a bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Hard to imagine that this desolate waste is going to be a place of celebration. But Yahweh promised it, so it's going to happen. It's also kind of hard to imagine a virgin having a son. (laughs) All right, but if that can happen, what can't happen? So we have a grace and truth revival. We also have every facet of joy and gladness. New marriages are going to begin new production in glory. And they're going to fill. They're going to be fruitful and multiply. And, uh, you know, the, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, well, okay. Remember, the, the wedding is the easy part. Uh, what happens afterwards the marriage for the glory of jesus christ and the work assignments and the production and the the glory and look what happens here as production takes place and uh, there will again be in this place which is a waste without man or without beast in all its cities a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks in the cities of the hill country in the cities of the lowland in the cities of the negev in the land of the benjamin of, of benjamin in the environs of jerusalem in the cities of judah the flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. And so we have commerce, we have business, we have generations, we have families, we have uh, all the production of what he has promised. And here it is. It's a beautiful thing. Now, the second half of the chapter. Behold, days are coming. Heard that expression before? It comes up a lot in Jeremiah. He likes it. It's a catchphrase for him. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. And when he uses it, what's he talking about? Typically, it's eschatological. He's talking second advent. He's talking about the coming. Uh, The days are coming because Yahweh is coming, that he will dwell amongst us. And there is his direct dealings on this earth. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All right, does this apply to the church? (laughs) Is this us? Were you here two weeks ago? We looked at the new covenant. Say it again. House of Israel, house of Judah, deals with the Jewish people, the coming restored throne of David. Nothing whatsoever to do with the body of Christ. We are not in this chapter. We can glean principles, we can glean truth, and, and we will make our own application, certainly, by extension, But ultimately, this is about Israel. It's not about us. And we'll see this. But days are coming. Days are coming. Because Yahweh is coming. God himself is coming. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. You know, this is something he didn't do in his first advent. 
Jesus is the root and branch of David. There's no question on that. He is the root of Jesse. And all of these terminologies are are powerful for studying in the, the humanity of Jesus Christ. But he came in first advent to suffer. He's coming in his second advent to reign. The cross has to precede the crown, if you understand the plan of God and how these things unfold. A righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. If, if you've got your hopes up in, in last week's political election, or if your hopes were dashed in last week's political election, either way, righteousness comes with Jesus Christ. Righteousness comes at the second advent. And anything short of second advent is grace and mercy in action. I would much rather have a believer than an unbeliever any, any, any four-year term. I would much rather have an evangelical than a non-evangelical, as believers go, in any term. All right, but ultimately it's not our political leaders, it's lampstands like this one. It's pastors and flocks around this country that are salt and light in their communities, in their states, and nationwide. We'll have national wisdom when we have local and state wisdom. And we see this here. We see God at work, and we see the spiritual revivals in grace and truth. All right, well, Israel's destiny is a Davidic destiny with Levitical ministry. There's a lot of uses here between David and Levi. A lot of uh, tandems between the throne of David and the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood that we understand from the Old Testament. It is a Davidic destiny with Levitical ministry. Should have made that liturgy. I could have had better ah, better alliteration with that. <laughs> Davidic destiny with Levitical liturgy. Ooh. All right, pretend that's what it says. I think these fancy radio preachers, they have editors and they have writers and they have helpers. And, and so when it comes across and then when their books get published and when they're on the radio, man, they sound slick. It's Davidic, okay? David himself resurrected. All of the Davidic kings resurrected, the believing ones, okay? And, uh, and, of course, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ himself, already resurrected, seated at the Father's right hand. He will come. He is waiting until the Father makes his enemies a footstool. He will descend. What a joy this is going to be. So, um, I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All right, in those days, in those days, verse 16, Judah will be saved Jerusalem will dwell in safety. See, the, the idea of saved has more than just you not going to hell. Okay, We're thankful for that. <laughs> okay, I got saved in 1973 and you got saved whenever. We're thankful for that. And if you're not yet saved, come talk to me. Okay, When class is over, I'll, I'll show you how it happened. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You can do that right here, right now, right in this room. But this verse isn't talking about that. This is another saving application. This is a national salvation, the saving deliverance of the Jewish people. They will be saved. All Israel will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. That's a national salvation of Israel through the tribulation. That's not with us in any kind of a Arminian heresy. All right. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called Yahweh said, Kenu, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. 
And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. There will be animal sacrifices in the millennium, and it will be a Levitical priesthood that does it. Specifically, the Zadok line will be exalted and blessed, but it is the Levitical priesthood in the millennial kingdom offering sacrifices. All right, verse 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, (laughs) so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. All right, and so here's some very important principles. Remember, Mosaic law was conditional. It could be broken, and it was broken. The uh, new covenant is unconditional. It cannot be broken because there's no conditions to break. The Davidic covenant was unconditional, is unconditional. It cannot be broken. Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 12 is unconditional. It cannot be broken. These unconditional covenants are huge because they cannot be broken. God himself can't break them. And the only way conceivably, if you can imagine such a thing, to break a covenant is to stop morning from following night. Stop night from following morning. Somehow, (laughs) you puny human, all right, you know, think of all the ways that God rebukes Job or God rebukes, you know, were you there when I created this place? Can you stop the motion of the sun, moon, and stars? Can you stop night from falling? Can you stop kids from growing up, (laughs) okay? I mean, time marches on, does it not? It flows forward in a linear, nonstop direction. One day per day, here we're going. And we can't stop it. We can't turn it back. We can't hinder the night. And, you know, only a couple of very unique miracles in the Old Testament could, you know, delay a day for a very lengthy period of time or move a, a shadow back up the staircase. Time proceeds linearly in a forward direction. So um, if you can stop that, if you can keep the sun from setting tonight or keep it from rising in the morning, if you can stop the cycle of morning and evening, right? Or, or evening and morning or whatever. Uh, in, in, the, in the creation account there, there was evening, there was morning, day one. If you can stop that cycle, then you can force God to break his covenant. Until then, God's going to stay faithful to David. And since the sun came up this morning, you know what? God is still faithful to David. He cannot lie to David, as we've seen. Jesus Christ, the righteous branch. By the way, we can save some time here because we've already taught this. This came up in chapter 23. We have the righteous branch that's promised here. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. And so he's back to this message again, and he's repeating this precious promise. Think about how tender he was as a tender shoot. Isaiah spoke of this as well. And uh, growing up, and, the, and the, the, the metaphor here that speaks of our Savior and His humanity and his, his, uh, the humility of the birth and all of this, well, He doesn't stay the babe in the manger. The babe in the manger didn't go to the cross, okay? The, uh, it's, the, it's the King of kings and Lord of lords that uh, is coming back when He conquers. The righteous branch will execute justice and righteousness in a rebuilt and renamed Jerusalem. Now, if you are a very close reader and you pay attention to the details, the details such as uh, Moffat Bible College is trying to ingrain upon their students, then they'll do a lot of flipping back and forth between Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33. 
And they'll go uh, do a lot of page flipping back and forth between Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Or you can bring them up in parallel windows in Bible software and look at them both simultaneously, which you can't do in a paper Bible. But look at them simultaneously and you'll see in chapter 23, it's Jesus who has the new name of Yahweh Tzidkenu. But in this chapter, it's the city of Jerusalem that gets the new name of Yahweh Tzidkenu. And it's not a contradiction at all. They're complementary. They're both true. Jesus gets his new name. The city gets his new name. And what's so strange about naming a city after somebody? Who was Austin named after? All right. It's kind of normal to name a city after somebody. What a better name than Yahweh Tzidkenu. In fact, we've got a fuller, more completely renal name. It's not very common. A king will take a new name when he sits on his throne anyway. He also has the name Emmanuel, which was promised and never used in his first advent. I believe that'll be his kingly name. He will be Yahweh Tzidkenu Emmanuel that will reign from Jerusalem. God with us. You understand? We have repeated mentions of Davidic and Levitical blessings. They're featured repeatedly in this context. We've already read 17 and 18. They come back again in 21 and 22. David, my servant, uh, Levitical priests, my ministers. Verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. David and Levi, David and Levi. Again, what, what a better reminder that this is not the church, right? Israel had a priesthood. We are a priesthood. One of my favorite lines from Lewis Berry Chafer. All right, Israel had a priesthood, the tribe of Levi. We are a priesthood. Born again believers in Jesus Christ. It's a big contrast. And uh, the mentions of them there. All right. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, that's verse 23, verse 24, Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord chose? He has rejected them. You know, God selected not only the tribe of of, uh, Judah, but the family of David. The house of David was selected. He chose the tribe of Levi, but he also chose the family of of Aaron, the, the priestly family. He chose a family within each tribe. And uh, so it's the Davidic family within the tribe of Judah that is the chosen family to be king. There is the Aaronic family within the tribe of Levi that is the priestly uh, line. And God made those selections. And he has not abandoned them. He never can, never will. Thus they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. And then the the repetition here in verses 25 and 26. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. Now this is going to be crucial for the second advent, of course, and the fulfillment of this by Jesus Christ. But also... To me, there's a, a tremendous rebuke of what Jewish people today think of as old Lang Syne, okay? The good old days. And uh, their golden age, as far as they're concerned, in the Maccabean era, the, uh, the Hasmonean reign of the, of the Maccabees. And isn't that uh, an extraordinary failure on their part? 
that with a, with a uh, if, if you know what I'm talking about, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament are about 400 silent years. And there's a lot that happened there, which any, any reader of the Bible understands as soon as they turn to Matthew, boom, we've got a lot of things we never heard of before. <laughs> there's Pharisees and Sadducees, and there's a bunch of things here in Matthew that we don't know from our Old Testament reading. What's happened in these 430 years or what have you? What's happened in this silent era? And a lot of that history you get in Josephus and Maccabees and so forth, it's critical to learn. I mean, you've got to learn a lot of this stuff or it, you end up with inferior gospel understandings in, in, in the New Testament. But where do those Pharisees come from anyway? This very issue I'm talking about this morning in Jeremiah. Because uh, they had a little civil war. They had, not a civil war, they had a war for independence. They were under the thumb of the Greeks and they said, you know what, we're going to break free from that. We're going to make our own kingdom. We're going to make our own throne. And uh, never mind Daniel, never mind Jeremiah, never mind the prophets, never mind what God said he was going to do. See? Yeah, God made those promises, but we're going to help God out. Okay? That always works. That's how Abraham gave birth to Ishmael. Okay? If you don't believe in the promises of God and you try to take matters in your own hands then you end up with trouble. And so they fought a war for independence. They threw off Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greek dominion over them, and they established their own Jewish kingdom. But they didn't take a Davidic son to make him king. They took a priest. And they decided to be, uh, you know, the Maccabees were priests. They were Levites. And uh, it's, it's remarkable even to this day, Jewish people view that as a marvelous time. And they celebrate, they got feasts, they celebrate Hanukkah, they celebrate all these other things. <laughs> they were putting a priest on the throne. And one group of faithful Bible students stepped up and said, no, this is wrong. One group of faithful Bible students said, the scepter belongs to Judah. David, the house of David is the king. The house of, of Aaron is the priests." And they stayed faithful. They were the, they, this is the birth of the Pharisees. Okay? And marvelous birth. I would have been a Pharisee had I been alive at that time. It's just what they morphed into by the time of Jesus was ugly and, and horrible. But what they started was, was right on target. Man, they had a literal hermeneutic. <laughs> okay? They, they spoke our language. All right. So we have David. We have Aaron. We have the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Levi. We have the promise of a restored kingdom and it's going to be at the second advent of Jesus Christ and we're not going to bring it about. It's not going to be human effort that brings it about. God is going to bring it about. So since we can't stop the fixed patterns of heaven and earth, we're not going to stop the Davidic covenant and God's not going to reject David. All right, I will restore their fortunes. I will have mercy on them. Isn't that beautiful? The absolute covenant language of I will. There's no if you wills, if you wills, if you wills, then I will. All of it is just I will. It's a beautiful thing. That's why it's better language than I do in wedding services. I love doing the I will in wedding services. Because it replicates the I will covenant language of our God. The I am says I will. And it's a beautiful thing. All right. Repeated words keep coming from Yahweh to Jeremiah. It's like each message is saying the same thing the last message said. 
If you, if any creature can alter the day and night arrangement of creation, then God will break his word to David and Levi. That's verses 19 through 22. And then again, why does he keep saying the same thing over and over again? A third reiteration, the fixed patterns of day and night guarantee the Lord's purposes as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They can take this and they can be confident in this. All right, Lord willing and rapture pending. We'll come back to chapter 34 next week and uh, more conflict with Zedekiah and uh, this king that doesn't want to hear what Jeremiah has to say but keeps going to him with questions. Why are you asking me if you're going to ignore? Right? And, uh, of course, Jeremiah, he, he kind of uh, plays it soft and easy. He's very cautious and very politically correct. Right? No, I'm kidding. Jeremiah says the truth no matter what. Even if he's going to insult the king, even if he gets thrown in the stocks again or down a well or in prison or wherever else. Jeremiah was, a, and we call him the weeping prophet, I think he's a man of incredible courage in, uh, in all that he did. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for the prophet Jeremiah and the messages that we're learning. And Father, for the uh, guarantees of uh, blessing to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. We're mindful, Father, that our nation has no such guarantees that uh, should we be destroyed, uh, we have no guarantee of a restoration or any kind of a return. And Father, uh, we're mindful of the fact that as salt and light, we want to be a benefit to our community, to our state, to our nation. We want to pray for our leaders. We want to pray for uh, the executive branch, legislative and judicial branch, and all that are in authority over us. Father, uh, thank you for being so faithful, for equipping us through your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.